Vera Podcast. Research matters. Welcome to this Vera Podcast. I'm Josh Hayes, co-convener of the Vera Sexualities and Gender Special Interest Group. And with the help of my co-convener, Finn Cullen, we're going to be talking to Dr. Anna Carlisle from Goldsmiths. Two years ago, relationship, sex and health education was made statutory for all English schools. And although COVID-19 is going to delay this process a bit, this framework is due to be implemented in schools sometime in the next couple of years. The new guidance sets out the requirements of RSHE to be LGBT plus inclusive and sensitive to the religious and cultural background of young people, dealing with topics like respectful friendships and online safety at primary level and more heavyweight issues around sexual health, harassment and violence, pornography and digital sexualities at secondary level. This new curriculum has unsurprisingly proved controversial. Many listeners will be aware of the protests led by members of the Muslim community in Birmingham, which received extensive media coverage. This plays into a dominant narrative, really, in which sexuality education is assumed to be inherently in tension with religious beliefs around gender and sexuality. While it is true that research in increasingly drawing attention to how sexuality education fails to adequately engage with religious young people, we are also increasingly seeing engagement with approaches that are inclusive and sensitive to religion. Finn and Anna, could you briefly introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Finn Cullen and I'm um, one of the Beera co-conveners. So my background is as a sex educator, as part of my youth work background, but I also was a research officer as part of the No Outsiders project and actually the issues around faith and sexuality equalities were kind of key there so I'm, I'm very keen to hear what Anna's got to say today. Hi there I'm Anna Carlisle I'm a senior lecturer in inclusive education at Goldsmiths I'm a teacher by trade I'm also in a same-sex relationship I originally didn't want to get typecast as a lesbian researcher doing lesbian research but I seem to have ended up doing some of that stuff anyway. Brilliant. Thank you both. Anna, can you summarise what your research on sexuality education is about and what led you to be interested in it? Um, I think I would call it LGBTQ inclusive education rather than sexuality education, really, because for me, it's not about having the lesson about gay stuff. It's more about normalising lots of different kinds of people right across the curriculum. The most relevant piece of work I've done recently around this um, was on LGBTQ inclusive education in primary schools serving faith communities and that was interviews with teachers about how they managed um, to do LGBTQ inclusive education in their schools um, and this was particularly in the context of the Birmingham protests. What led me to be interested in this stuff um, is partly because I have four children. My youngest is five and the first three of my children have all been bullied at school because they have two mums. And I was just at the point of thinking I cannot let this carry on um, and I just wanted to find out more and I got into doing this research with a charity called Educate and Celebrate. They were delivering LGBT inclusive education um, right across the country and they asked me to step in to do some evaluation of their work and I originally did an evaluation of their approach to doing this stuff with NatSEN, part of a big DfE funded project but after that kind of general assessment of their model 
I said to Ellie Barnes, who runs the charity, I'd really like to have a focus on schools which serve faith communities. And we were quite serious about not just looking at church schools or faith schools, but actually all schools which serve children who come from families um, in faith communities. So that was the focus of that piece of research. And I think that's really important research because I think what has tended to happen within a large part of the literature, and that's also kind of reproduced within media discourses, is this idea that faith and sexuality are quite terrifying. And then to do um, further research in this area, that you're going to just find a lot of negativity or it's going to be seen as quite problematic. And with that, the faith community is usually um, seen as regressive and reactionary and LGBT communities are seen as purely secular and actually kind of complicating that seems to be really vital and important work. Yeah absolutely and things like the Birmingham protests and the way that the media reported it specifically really sets up a kind of false binary. People like Yvette Taylor have talked about this in her work on queer religious youth and how some queer youth have actually found a lot of succor within their kind of faith communities. And the fact is that there are religious LGBT people. Um, So we can't just say it's religion on the one hand and LGBT people on the other, but that is how the media um, likes to portray it. And that's what I was interested in, in kind of undermining. I mean, one of the really interesting sides of this is I went to all of these primary schools to interview um, teachers who were delivering this stuff, and I really expected to find that the teachers delivering this LGBT-inclusive work were LGBT themselves. And what I found was that most of them weren't LGBT people. Most of them were actually um, religious studies teachers. And the reason for that was the teacher who tended to end up being the religious studies teacher often tended to end up being the inclusion teacher. And they would very often start out with special educational needs. So when this LGBT inclusive stuff comes along, it goes into the folder of that inclusion person. So that was really interesting to find what their perspectives were on all of that. That's really fascinating in terms of how inclusion is imagined as well, because of course inclusion often just gets perceived to be around SEND issues. And of course, that is a large part of it. But actually, I'm thinking about broader work um, such as Booth, who argues that inclusion should be class and race and gender and sexuality. So it's really interesting that in practice, that all of those do get kind of put together. It's interesting that this is often a route that people take. So they'll come from a kind of religious space which is very, I suppose, paternalistic about disability. But once you kind of get into SEN, people soon kind of develop more of a nuanced approach to it. But people get very comfortable with dealing with SEN and being inclusive around um, disability. And once you are aware of how that works within the Equality Act, and then, of course, you're anti-racist, the Equality Act opens up the possibility for people to make the leap to being um, LGBT inclusive as well, because the arguments that you can make about inclusion for all of those groups are the same. There's a there's a certain kind of uh, critical um, approach to inclusion that you sometimes see in the literature, which is that um, inclusion is what you might call a kind of like an additive approach, which is that we just need to keep on kind of adding in 
um, people um, adding in um, different identities and different uh, experiences into the approach that we already have and that as a model of inclusion. What would you say kind of in response to that kind of comment or critique? I mean, all of these words have got different connotations. For example, I really prefer talking about anti-racism training as opposed to unconscious bias. I just think it's much more useful to talk about what you're talking about as opposed to using an acronym or or, or some kind of label to kind of paint over something and make it seem more easy than it is. What inclusion comes down to for me is being nice to everybody, basically. Um, And the Equality Act has actually been incredibly useful to almost bracket out some of the most important inclusion characteristics. What it doesn't do is include um, socioeconomic disadvantage, and that's a huge hole in the Equality Act. Um, But apart from that, it does do quite a clever job of balancing lots of different protected characteristics in situations where they might find themselves in opposition to each other. Absolutely. So, and that's also quite interesting in terms of bringing that legal framework to the theoretical in terms of the, the kind of movement towards a more intersectional analysis. Because actually, we all have um, impairments. We all have a social class. We all have a gender or a sex identity. It might not necessarily fit into an easy binary, but it's about actually engaging with that. And I guess the protected characteristics don't do that fully, but they do allow us to think about how individuals might be um, framed within a nexus of social and structural positions. Whereas the unconscious bias, um, the use of unconscious bias in terms of how I've seen it being used as kind of work-based training tends to be it's your individual choice and your individual strategy to just prevent yourself being biased and just so it kind of touches on structural oppression but it doesn't have that deeper um, engagement with structural oppression say the critical race theory or the or that other approaches around civil rights do. linking that back to sexuality education then what would you say that kind of um these problem, these these debates over unconscious bias and the, the 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 need for inclusivity and what you've been talking about anti-racism. These are, this is language that we don't often see used in the context of sexuality education, but it's I think it's worth talking about. So I do think that sometimes the LGBT. I'm not going to include Q in this bit, but um, it's sometimes used as a as a kind of, um, well, the word is homonormativity. So it's like, um, which is Jasbir Puar's work, it's how some organisations, some governments, some institutions can come out as very LGBT inclusive as a way to kind of whitewash their approach to inclusion. LGBT inclusion can be co-opted to make an organisation look kind of kosher, And you don't have to look any further than the Conservative Party and the same-sex marriage amendment for that. So, and that is what was leveraged in these Birmingham protests. You know, I personally felt utterly appalled when I heard the way that these, um, these communities were being described as kind of backward, um, 
because they were protesting against LGBT inclusive education, I was appalled that in kind of shouting for my rights, I was hearing a very loud xenophobic voice. And that's really what started me on this journey of thinking about working with faith communities and also the concept of um, allyship. I'm really interested in kind of pragmatism. So I'm coming from a place as someone who's an academic, but also someone who's been a teacher and someone who always works in schools and with kids to do my research. So I always want my research to have a useful impact and to have usability with it. And what that does, that desire, is it kind of bends the theory and it bends the kind of idealised approach to this sort of work to fit with the institutions, the very institutions that we are trying to fix in the first place. There's multiple complexities here, isn't there, in terms of how co-option happens and how do we work with the complexity of these different identity categories in producing relevant and coherent practice and policy interventions? I mean, I'll give you an example. Up until now, people who do research on LGBT inclusive education tend to critique particularly the UK government's reliance on anti-bullying policy. And they'll say, you know, every time you talk about LGBT people, if it's all about anti-bullying, then what you're doing is you're pathologising LGBT people as always the victim and you're not kind of celebrating people. But what I found in all my research in schools is that you can strategically work from an anti-bullying place to more of a generic inclusion approach. And that's because schools are very well versed in anti-bullying practice now. They are passionate about it. They will argue with anyone who says they're not good at it. So it's something that schools tend to be very proud of now. And so if you start from an anti-bullying standpoint with your LGBT inclusion, it's very difficult then for people to say um, that they don't want to do it, particularly when you get to the point where you say, well, look, if we work on usualising or normalising LGBT people and people from other protected characteristics across the curriculum, what that does is it destigmatises different kinds of people and destigmatising can lead to a reduction in bullying. So it's quite useful to kind of think in a more nuanced and pragmatic way about how you can implement some of these approaches. I went on The Moral Maze a few months ago. It was an episode called The Tolerance of Intolerance, and it was all about the Birmingham incidents. And one of the questions that they tried to hit me with was a kind of shocked approach to, you know, are you actually trying to deconstruct heteronormativity as if that was a terrible thing? And really, all I could say was, I'm just trying to stop people bullying each other. And afterwards, when they, you go back in the green room, and then they talk about you, and you're sitting there, and you have to listen to them talking about you, it's really horrible. And what they, they actually couldn't find any way to disagree with what I said until they kind of remembered that they were supposed to be being really critical. And then they started calling what I'd said an ideology as virulent as any fundamentalist religion. 
isn't that interesting in terms of how they frame both um kind of gender um sex gender um work and faith there it's all about fundamentalist ideology what does that mean that's a really and of course of course when you do a radio show i hope we're not doing that here um people are looking for kind of polar opposite views and that's a real problem because then what happens is when we're having trying to discuss something as nuanced as faith and sexuality or LGBT plus or equalities issues, what happens is it just turns into a slanging match. And you're right, there's so many permutations and complexities around social justice. There's point there's so many points of allyship around, say, social justice. That get totally squeezed out because, you know, so many faith-based settings. And most, and most, you know, certainly world faiths are passionate believers in social justice. And so that's something about bullying. It's about this space of solidarity and liberation and empowerment. So on the on this kind of practical question of building allyship that we've been talking about, um, I wonder, Anna, you were recently involved in developing an RSHE policy. I wonder, could you talk about some of the challenges involved in that? For example, the challenges of building allyship across divides that appear to be very wide, for want of a better word. And how did you overcome those challenges? So it was really interesting. Um, I'm a school governor and I went to a training about the new RSHE policy. And the training was delivered by people mainly with a background in religious education and sexual health Um, and those were the people who were writing the LGBT inclusive um, relationships and sex education policy for that area. Um, I went up and talked to them, exchanged email addresses and eventually found myself looking at this draft policy and it had a lot of, the early draft had a lot of misconceptions in it and a lot of kind of false oppositions. So one example was what they wanted to do was give an example of how a school might come up against um, some kind of conflict between people with different protected characteristics. And what the people that they said the conflict might be between were a Muslim parent and a gay rights activist. And what I said was, why why are you making the gay person a gay rights activist? Why can't it just be a Muslim parent and a lesbian parent who are both thinking about how they want their children to be educated in different ways? So those were the sorts of conversations I had with the other other person who was writing up this policy. And they were difficult conversations because there were some misconceptions which I at times found quite offensive and sometimes I had things to say which she found difficult to swallow. And some of the problem was that she had put a huge amount of effort into listening to people from all sorts of areas. So she'd listened to, I think it was 52 imams in the area talking about their concerns. And she'd also talked to people from the LGBT community. But the people she talked to were a very small kind of subsection of that community who had particular viewpoints and what she'd done was she'd taken on this um kind of stereotyped idea of the gay agenda and she kept using this phrase phrase gay agenda and eventually I kind of said look it's it's not 
gay agenda. If there's an agenda, it's just that everybody's inclusive of each other. It's not a particularly gay agenda. So those were the sorts of conversations that we were having, and we worked it through, and we worked it through, and eventually she sent me the draft policy, um, and it said, you know, she said, I don't think you'll like it, and I sent it back, and I said, I really like it. I don't know why you don't think I'll like it. And we ended up with something that we both really liked, and we are now thinking about writing a book together about the Equality Act for schools because what we really want to do is write a book which is as inclusive as possible of all the protected characteristics and socioeconomic disadvantage and so that nothing has um, priority over another. We want to demonstrate that that can be done. Mm. I'm really interested as to how... And as that policy got got formed and the kind of eventual outcome of, of what you had there, um, how that kind of how that might look on the ground for, let's say, a, um, a school staff member who's tasked with uh, developing the school's RSHE policy in, in consultation with people or a teacher of RSHE who is faced with uh, the challenges of navigating a highly diverse classroom, practically speaking. How do you think that kind of the the thinking that took place in that policy formation context trickles down to some of the the dilemmas that it can sometimes feel like teachers are facing? Based on putting that together and also this research with teachers I did, I've got kind of three main points on this. The first is that schools and teachers can be really confident in basing their work within the Equality Act, notwithstanding the social and economic disadvantage bit. You have to be conscious and bring that in, but you can really rely on the Equality Act and you can start out by telling stories and doing work with the kids around inclusion, around disability and race and get make sure that everybody agrees with the principles of inclusion before talking about Um, LGBT people. The second thing is that I think schools and teachers can, as I said earlier, rely on unarguability of anti-bullying work, really. Um, It's a great thing to talk about with parents um, and with children. And the third thing is to be empathic with parents who will come and talk to you on the gate and recognise that, you know, if somebody is genuinely terrified that their child might end up in hell because you're trying to make them gay that you actually do need to listen to those parents and give them space to speak and reassure them that you recognize that no religion condones bullying and that all religions um, teach that you shouldn't judge one another that only God can judge and usually um, people are are fine about it after that but it does mean um, teachers who are delivering this stuff need to feel very confident that they know the Equality Act and that they situate their work firstly within their anti-bullying policy at their school. I mean, so that sounds like there were some um, kind of takeaways here in terms of implications for ongoing professional development and initial teacher education. What would you say those would be, Anna? I mean, this is the sort of thing I talk about in front of our PGC students all the time. In terms of future work what I'm really interested in developing is um, sort of stronger allyship discourses you know I wouldn't want to talk about LGBT inclusion without talking about Black Lives Matter I wouldn't want to talk about um, the inclusion of 
people of faith or the Islamophobia that some of my students experience every day without talking about the particular difficulties that black trans people experience. And it's about helping people from different groups understand that we are all actually fighting for the same thing. And that is to allow people to live their lives without being hassled, basically. Um, so that's where, what I want to move towards in my work. I want, I want it to be a lot more intersectional. But I think that with the new RSE policy, we really do have to stand up in front of our new training teachers, our newly educated teachers, and make sure that they have um, an understanding of the kind of theoretical and legal framework that underpins what they're doing, but also a box of tips, hints and tips about how to do it. Because the research I did really shows that a huge amount of problem here is just based in teacher confidence. When teachers actually start doing this stuff with kids, the kids lead the way. They're the ones who know all about inclusion and social justice. And once teachers and new teachers hear children and young people talking very intelligently, very open-mindedly about LGBT inclusion in schools serving faith communities, it gives teachers confidence that they can actually talk about this stuff without causing a riot, which is what they're afraid of. That's so important. I, mean, I was going to ask you now the magic wand question in terms of if you did have a magic wand, what are your hopes for the future around work in this field around LGBT inclusive work in terms of supporting inclusive work and education for social justice more generally? Well, apart from all the stuff I have been talking about, I've recently been doing some research with um, transgender and gender diverse young people and their families. And I've just submitted an article about it. And what I'm finding is that transgender children and young people are having a, an appalling time in schools and in clinics getting the support they need getting the inclusion they need um, being terribly bullied what I'd really like to see if I could wave a magic wand I'd make schools and local authorities understand that supporting an affirmative approach to transgender and gender diverse and non-binary young people is 100% within the law, first of all, and secondly, it's the right thing to do. I think that's a really important point. Thank you so much. Um, I think we're coming to the end now, but I, I just want to thank you, Anna, for such a really insightful and a really nice overarching exploration of your recent work and a really nice engagement with some of the really big issues that we're facing at the moment and I think I think your work is so important so can I I've learned a lot thank you so much thanks for listening to the Bureau podcast for the latest news on Bureau events and activities visit www.bureau.ac.uk